From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today we'll speak with an indigenous chef who opened a restaurant in Wisconsin that serves modern, seasonal Ojibwe fare. Then we'll speak with two of Milwaukee's foremost chefs about our restaurant scene. Milwaukee is very unique. It definitely provides a platform for storytellers. You know, our, our medium is food. We tell stories through our food. We'll learn about the viral recipe for the Italian grinder sandwich. I think it's awesome that a new generation of sandwich eaters has been exposed to so many new things that have been around for a long time. Plus, learn about the growing popularity of bubble tea. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Last spring, the restaurant Mijum opened in La Pointe, Wisconsin on Madeline Island in Lake Superior. Mijum, which is Ojibwe for food, is an indigenous restaurant that serves up modern, seasonal Ojibwe fare, using meats like venison, bison, and rabbit, alongside other ingredients like wild rice, island mushrooms, and ramps. Bryce Stevenson is the chef of Mijum. He grew up on the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Reservation, and he's part of a growing food sovereignty movement among indigenous chefs. WUWM's Lena Tran spoke with Chef Stevenson last year ahead of the restaurant's opening. I understand it's your first restaurant. Tell me about your vision for the place. What do you want it to be? What I want Mijum to be is is a place that, well, one, represents the Shaquamagon Bay area. It represents Red Cliff tribe. It represents Bad River tribe. It represents all the Ojibwe tribes that, that once originated from the island and were forcibly removed. And, and I, I want to sort of reclaim a little spot on the island with our traditional foods and to take those foods and just make them accessible to everybody, to indigenous people and tourists and locals alike. I just, I just want a fun energetic place with really great food and and to have people come in with an open mind and be able to learn something and take something home with them that they're they'll be able to hopefully pass on to others. Do you feel like that's something there that you see on the island, you know, or does this feel kind of like breaking new ground for the Madeline Island scene? I mean, honestly, I in my personal opinion, the island's overrun with uh, tourism, summer homes. There aren't a lot of great expressions of Ojibwe culture in any fashion. There's there's hints of it. You'll see some of the streets here are bilingually labeled, so they'll be labeled in the Anishinaabemowin as well as English. Um, and we do have the Madeline Island Museum here, which does a great job in trying to explain the, the origins of the fur trade and sort of the mixture of indigenous peoples with the French in this spot. But beyond that, there's nothing. There's no food representation here. There's just, there's no art representation here. There's just no, no solid representation that says there are natives on this island still, and they're thriving. Given that it is such a tourist destination in the summertime, but it's in this like culturally significant place, do you see your role or like feel some pressure to be an educator with the restaurant? What is that feeling like? I really think that's, that's always been a, reality I had to face with a project like this. I, I really, I formed the, the, the clear picture of Mijam and what I wanted it to be 
very long ago, like when, when I first started cooking, when I first got into a kitchen and started falling in love with the, the art of it, I had already had this name and this, this concept and this place I've already picked out. So I think the, the ultimate goal is to just teach people that, yes, we have a different culture and yes, we, I just want to break people away from the, the stereotypes of indigenous peoples, you know, especially in this area. There's still many, many people who look at us in a very negative light and think of us as just subservient workers who, you know, they keep the the inns and the restaurants running, but they're not any better for that. And I, I just I, I want people to see that there is there is passion and creativity and art and just this beautiful culture that is just thriving in this area that the, the average tourist when they come here, they don't see it. They see the the main attractions and you know, they might stop in the casino and come to a preconceived misconception about indigenous people there, but I want them to have a better understanding of who we are and, you know, why we are a significant addition to this area and, and this and the earth. What, what's been some of the inspiration as you're putting this new menu together? My inspiration is always, always, always what, what is the best that I can get right now. With Medium, there there won't be any big trucks pulling up with big orders of produce and frozen pieces of whatever. It's coming, you know, from local farmers. We work on a tier system, which is try to source from indigenous peoples first. We have foragers and farmers and fishers and try to make an indigenous first. And, it, and if we can't find something specifically from that source, we you know try to go local. Who's on the island growing what? Just as local as we can get it. Worst case scenario, you know, our, our bottom line is uh, organic. At least we, we want to make sure we have the best quality food. And based on that, the menu will will change. It could change as much as every day, every couple of days. But uh, we want to be able to bring in the best of what the season and the area has to offer. And then as it changes, we change with it. So that's that's the that's the main inspiration. Yeah, that's great to hear. Uh, can you talk about some of the indigenous producers or growers that you've kind of been able to connect with throughout this process? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of my favorites is Ramona Farms. They're not in this area. They are down in uh, Arizona, but they um, are indigenous farm that grows different varieties of tepary beans. And I, that's my favorite bean. And so sort of more locally, we have uh, Redcliffe Fish Company, which is a uh, tribally owned fishery in Redcliffe, um, my tribe. And uh, so getting fresh lake fish from an indigenous source for an indigenous restaurant. It's just, it's just what, something that makes me just always smile. Um, and then another great one is uh, Cheyenne River Buffalo Company, uh, Cheyenne River Tribe. And, you know, their, their bison product is just, it's just an incredible product that a lot of indigenous chefs make sure that they go there for. This is WWM's Lena Tran. I'm speaking with Chef Bryce Stevenson. He is the chef of Mijim, which is an Ojibwe restaurant in La Pointe, Wisconsin on Madeline Island. How did you get into the industry? When did you get into cooking and kind of discover that this is what you wanted to do? I was definitely a late bloomer in the industry. I had a lot of what I would call past lives for, you know, as young as I am. I get bored easily. And, you know, when I'm learning something, I, if I learn it and there's not more to learn, I, I get too bored and I want to move on to something else that I can like, fill my mind with. I used to be a carpenter. I used to be a letter pressman. I was a graphic designer. I was a 
tree and shrub specialist for a summer. You know, just <laughs> across the board with, you know, trying to figure out what, like, what's making me happy all this while I'm going to school uh, at UWM and, you know, studying English and Indigenous studies. And I got sick of framing houses. I needed a break physically. And uh, there's a little restaurant opening by my house called Hello Falafel. It just seemed really cool. It was done by the owners of Odd Duck, Ross and Melissa in Milwaukee. And I, I saw it. I thought it'd be cool to meet some people and, you know, learn a little bit more about cooking. I used, I worked at McDonald's in you know, high school, just like a lot of people. When I started there, everything, every, everything was from scratch. So as soon as I walk in, I'm learning how to make, you know, Israeli pickles and I'm learning how to make, you know, laffa bread and, you know, just all these things that are just hundred percent from scratch. And I just, I fall in love with it so, so hard. <laughs> um, it was just one of those things where it's just, it was just, I felt like a, I, there was no way I could stop learning. No matter how far out you stretch, there's a, a million little things that are just going to come crawling at you with ideas and flavors and scents. And it just, I, I wasn't able to look back after that. <laughs> yeah. You said earlier that you got into this like kind of late in life. I'm curious, like what your relationship with food and dining was like growing up and I don't know did you have an inkling of it now looking back that your life might have gone this way so as a as a kid and you know indigenous people will connect to this very easily but we we grew up on commodities and uh so it was just it's just canned vegetables canned meats just dry goods everything usda just dry no possibility of going bad and it, it just makes makes us sick you know diabetes heart disease uh, all of that just rampant and you know so when we were kids my mom that's that's how she cooked she just she would open up a couple cans of this and that throw it in a pot and say that's dinner you know and and it, it was never very pleasant uh, but it was food when sort of things started getting rough for my mom and her marriage and when I was younger, she had ended up working a lot up here. And so she was working three jobs, just, just night and day. And so there was five of us and I, I, I had to cook a lot, you know, I had to cook dinner for, you know, my siblings so that we had stuff to eat and I learned how to clean at that age. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a little younger than I'd say most kids are when they learn those kind of life skills, but since that like I, I've always been very self-sufficient I've always cooked for myself and you know was never a great cook but you know I, I still I still try to come up try to make things tasty you know it was mostly packaged ramen and just white rice but you know you try to what, what can I add to this to make it a little better it was about flavor just like what can I how can I make it good I was that's how I was until honestly I met my wife um 15 years ago and she's she's Italian through and through and being with her family and cooking with her grandparents and seeing again that sort of scratch cooking like that like that had a big impact on me that that changed the way I looked at food and if it wasn't for that I, I would never have traveled down a path where I would even go to Odd Duck to try it because it would just be too strange for me or too unapproachable because I'm used to eat hamburger helper and rice aroni. So, <laughs> and, and so, so that was definitely very significant. It, it was, it was something that I, I instantly wish that my own family had and that more people in my reservation had with those food traditions where you sit around the table and you talk and you laugh and you make this 
or you eat this food that took all day to make from scratch. And, you know, I just want, I want people to be inspired to be able to do that. And that's why I wanted to do everything I can to bring indigenous food, to highlight it, to highlight it in this area. Bryce Stevenson is the chef at Mijum. He spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran in May, ahead of the opening of the restaurant in La Pointe. The restaurant is now closed for the season. Last year, Visit Milwaukee launched a new TV series to share stories of positivity happening around the city. Good Things Brewing seeks to show what makes Milwaukee a great place through the eyes of some of the city's most interesting residents. We partnered with Visit Milwaukee and spoke with some of the guests on the first season of Good Things Brewing. Last year, I sat down with Paul Bartolotta of the Bartolotta Restaurants and Jesus Gonzalez of Zocalo Food Truck Park, who were featured in the first episode. Gonzalez begins by sharing how he first met Chef Bartolotta. You know what's funny? I don't think I've ever shared this anecdote, but the first time I met Chef Bartolotta was at the Culinary Institute of America. Uh, Chef, uh, you were there. I believe you were a judge at the uh, Bocuse d'Or. There was a competition going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was years ago. I mean, yeah. 31. And that, was, that was when I was like 18 years old. You were, you were a judge. And as soon as I heard your name that you were a guest judge, I was like, this is amazing. I mean, growing up and hearing the Barladas uh, in Milwaukee was a big deal. And the fact that he was the closest thing that I would get to Milwaukee, being out there and just being homesick, it was awesome. Yeah. So I, I introduced myself. You know, you probably don't remember me because, I mean, so many kids in white, you know, white chef coats. Uh, but it was a great experience. Well, you you were very fortunate because you went to, you know, we, I love MATC and it does great work. But probably the premier culinary academy in America has to be the the Culinary Institute of America. So he started at the top of the line. And, um, and we, you know, I've taught some master classes out in, in CIA Greystone, and I've done uh, a bunch of different things at the at the CIA. But it's an incredible school, and I've watched it grow from my days in New York uh, in the late 80s. So um, it's nice that you remember that, but I'm still very active um, with Boku's Door uh, and, uh, and supporting, mentoring young chefs, uh, uh, to grow beyond, and also for Team USA that competes in the Culinary Olympics at, in Lyon every two years. That's fantastic. And to go to the Culinary Institute and also just decide to come back home, um, what was kind of your inspiration or kind of your guiding mission that led you to where you are today? Right. Uh, so when I left, I was 17 years old. It was very, I was very young, and I was very uh, eager to, to just get a different perspective. Uh, go, you know, Going to New York kind of gave me my independence. I learned so much about myself. And so through my experience at the Culinary Institute of America, I was able to to work abroad. I did an internship out in Spain. I was able to travel to China for about three weeks, learn about the culture, the cuisine. And through that experience, I realized that, you know, Milwaukee is very unique. And I think there it does, it definitely provides a platform for storytellers. And I think we just, you know, our, our medium is food. We tell stories through our food. And so I was eager to come back and just tell that story. And Paul, similarly, you've worked in kitchens around the world as well. What keeps you coming back to Milwaukee to continue to grow and develop what you have here? 
So my father said when we were growing up, you know, home is not a place to run away from. It's a place to come home to. And my father encouraged all of the kids to leave. Milwaukee will be here. Go see the world. See where you're happy. And then maybe you'll, you'll think about where you grew up and then come home. And in my case, I was in Italy for six, seven years cooking. I was in France for a year and a half. And I came back and opened a restaurant in New York and then took over a restaurant in Chicago, Spiaggia. And then in 93, my brother called me to do restaurants up in Milwaukee. And it was a dream come true for me. Uh, when I was over in Italy, I would be writing him letters. Joe, you and I should do something together as a team. I'll do the back, you do the front. And it was something that actually came to fruition. And then I had an opportunity to go to Las Vegas with Steve Wynn. I did that as well. Meanwhile, I continued to develop and, and build restaurants with my brother. Uh, and sadly, when my brother passed in 2019, we were already discussing, you know, my coming actually home definitively to Milwaukee. Um, didn't want to come back on those terms, but, um, you know, spent a lot of time developing these restaurants with my brother and the culture of our, of our organization and our team. And we've just watched Milwaukee grow. And not only in the diverse neighborhoods, whether it's Greendale or Mequon or, or you know, downtown Milwaukee or Wauwatosa, but also just in the diversity of what's going on, what young guys like Basis is doing, like amazing stuff, really exciting. And it just there's there's an energy uh, around the various neighborhoods in Milwaukee and the, and the cuisine. And you really said it extremely well. You know, when we look at a restaurant, we break it down into three main components. The environment in which the guest enjoys, the food and beverage offerings that we serve them, and then obviously hospitality and the relationship building you build. But it all gets connected through the theme that he mentioned, which is so critical. It's the journey. Well, and I love talking to the both of you and seeing just maybe it's a different place on the matter of scale, but it's the commonality of that experience of having the dishes. No, no, I'm just you. really old <laughs> compared to him. That's the, the big difference. He's got a lot more springy to step. Well, and, you know, with that commonality of like this is the foundation of what you both do, no matter what, is delivering a quality experience to people. And also a main thing is supporting the people who work for you. So at Zocalo, it's not just a place for food trucks. You also support your vendors. Vendors and, you know, kind of guide and coach them. So why is that an important part for you in your business? Yeah, uh, you know, working with other food entrepreneurs, that's, that's our core. That's how we got started. During my experience of being on first in Pittsburgh, that's where I started to meet these young food entrepreneurs that had a food truck or were talking about getting a food truck. So they were sharing their visions of, you know, what they wanted to accomplish and they wanted to do it with me on first in Pittsburgh. But unfortunately, we couldn't do that because we just didn't have the correct per, you know, permits to do so, right? And so we started, you know, my, my business partner and I decided, well, why don't we look for a space where we can build this platform, right? Where we could come uh, and invite more entrepreneurs to come and start their businesses. And through that process, you know, we opened up in 2019 a few years now, like we've been able to see great timing, perfect. Timing. Right, right. Nine months right before the, the pandemic, right? Yeah. You know, we've trial been, by fire. Absolutely, and, it, and we've been able to see the evolution of these food entrepreneurs from idea to execution to growth, which is probably what motivates us the most to keep doing it. And in our end, and I look back. 30 years because Ristorante Bartolote in Wauwatosa, in the village of Wauwatosa, had its 30th anniversary. Um, you're, are you 30 yet? Just check. 31, yeah. Uh, we were in a one, first year of business when he was born. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> wow. Uh, but when I look back on the day, 
I remember being down in the in the prep kitchen below and and uh, Peter Maki coming downstairs and saying, um, you know, your brother sent me down here to see what, you know, products you need. And I said, you know, I need fresh basil. I need fresh rosemary. I need this. I made a list of all these products. And he looks at me, Paul, listen, you may have that in Chicago. He said, but we don't have that in Milwaukee. And I sort of tapped him on the shoulder and said, start driving, Peter. And he laughed. But, you know, back in the day he was starting out, Peter Maki, uh, Maki, Tony Maki Protos had, you know, a van or two. And now they have a fleet of trucks. So we view our role in, you know, we touch so many different people's lives. When we see young chefs that come through our, or, or managers come and open their own restaurants, it's prideful for us. When we see people come through and share a couple of years of their life but go on to become a doctor because they paid through school or whatever it is, they shared a moment of our li- of their lives with us. And in the cumulatively, each one of those people made our business better. And it's the same with our vendors. We, you know, we talk a lot in our leadership team. It's, it's like, don't call your vendor and complain because something isn't perfect. Don't forget to call them when it's exceptional and support their business. Right. And I know that Good Things Brewing, was this the first time that brought the two of you together at the end of the episode when you both met? I person? had the pleasure of meeting him for the first time. <laughs> Outside when of the did... Culinary Institute. <laughs> first meeting. Yeah, that I, I regret not remembering. I apologize. <laughs> but no, yes. that was the first time we yeah. worked. We, it was yeah. an honor to meet him. It was yeah. a pleasure. So, and obviously that's grown into what seems like a very good relationship here. And how would you both describe Milwaukee's food scene and like the community among its chefs? What's it like for you guys being in the midst of it? I think the one thing that brings us together is that we just understand the the amount of sacrifice and the, you know, the determination or just how resilient this community is. Like that brings us together. You know, we're in the trenches together. You know, this is our second year out of the pandemic you know, it was tough, right? And I think uh, what, what helped us get through it was that community of food entrepreneurs at Zocalo. So we lean on each other when we need it. And we, we support each other. We try to empower one another so that we can continue to grow. And I, I'd echo that 100%. We, you know, losing my brother in 19 was an enormous personal loss, but it was also a loss of my business partner. And quite honestly, Joe had always been the face of the company. I, by design, I always sort of stayed behind. I think I did myself a disservice because now I'm sort of reintroducing people to the company that I've been a part of for 30 years. But it was something that people, they saw Joe, and, and Joe was larger than life. And so I said to somebody, you know, impossible shoes to fill. And somebody said, no, no, don't, don't fill them. Just where he stopped walking, you just got to keep continuing. And I, I kind of like that, like to build on his legacy. And so when I think about um, all the different people that have, that, that have come through and then how they've gone out and opened their restaurants, a lot of people called, um, you, know, you know, for advice or things like this during the pandemic. But conversely, I was listening and asking them a lot of questions. How are you handling this? Because huh? the answer is none of us have all the answers. This right. is a really complicated business. And so um, there's a camaraderie. The, the competitive, you know, I tell everybody there are way too many restaurants in Milwaukee, but I'm a restaurateur. I want no competition. We're in the business of business. But conversely, it only forces everyone to get better. So truly, I mean, if I think back 30 years, it is remarkable what is happening in Milwaukee. And I couldn't be more proud. So when they talked about including, you know, food guys uh, on um, Good Things Brewing, um, to me, it was an honor because I think restaurants are much more than just a place to go eat. I think they actually create community. And and therefore, we all, and you customers out there listening, you know, support your local restaurant because there's a lot of great people that, that live within these restaurants that are here 
to give you pleasure and take care of you and, and serve you and, and make amazing food for you and welcome you and recognize you. And that is what community is about. That was a great answer. Definitely love that. Yeah. Community. Paul Bartolotta is a chef and co-founder of the Bartolotta Restaurants. Jesus Gonzalez is a chef and co-owner of Zocalo Food Truck Park. They were both featured in the first episode of Visit Milwaukee's Good Things Brewing series last year. The second season of the show is in production now. A sandwich is just a sandwich, right? Well, that might depend on where you're from. If they say a grinder, I know they're from New England East Coast. If they say a hoagie, they might be from New Jersey. If they say a bomber or something, they're probably from Racine or Kenosha. And so uh, it's interesting that you can peg people for where they're originally from by how they order the same sandwich. We'll tell you what sets an Italian grinder sandwich apart from other sandwiches in about 15 minutes. But first, we'll take a trip to El Rey Grocery Store to hear from some of their customers and employees. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Last year marked El Rey's 45th anniversary. The brothers Ernesto and Beto Villarreal opened the first El Rey in 1978. They were following in the footsteps of their father, who ran a small store in the 60s that served Mexican immigrants, like themselves, in Milwaukee. Years later, the Hispanic grocery has grown to include four stores and a tortilla factory that supplies local restaurants with chips and tamales. It's one of the largest Hispanic-owned businesses in the entire state. Over time, El Rey's offerings have evolved along with Milwaukee's immigrant community. At first, Milwaukee's Hispanic people came mostly from Mexico, so El Rey just offered Mexican products. As new immigrant communities came from the Caribbean and Central and South America, the store evolved to cater to their tastes and traditions too. WUWM's Lena Tran and former Community Engagement Coordinator Rafael Munoz went to the El Rey off Cesar Chavez Drive to talk with customers and staff about the beloved grocery store. If you're going to El Rey on Cesar Chavez, you will have to maneuver through the bustling parking lot. The elote vendor outside of the store will be tempting, but keep walking. The sliding doors are in sight. Once you make it in, you're rewarded with abundance. You can get anything at El Rey. Candy, cakes, fresh cut fruit, pan dulces from the bakery. You keep walking and there's a counter where you can order hot food. There's construction workers taking a break over nachos, families eating lunch together. And then the produce section, the beating heart of the store, gleaming piles of limes and Roma tomatoes, mangoes, guava, and papaya so ripe, the air is sweet. Some people come here with a plan or, in Latoya Williams's case, a vision. We find her on a busy afternoon at El Rey, checking out vegetables in the produce section. Right now I'm looking for some vegetables to go into it because I want to make a chicken pot pie soup. Chicken pot pie soup? Yes, that ma'am. That sounds amazing. What does that mean? Actually, it is going to be my first time making it. I thought about it because I like the chicken and rice, but I also like biscuits and gravy. 
So I, I seen a little sauce, so I'm gonna create a chicken pot pie soup with biscuits on the side. That sounds amazing. So so your like pot pie part, the pie part, is gonna be the biscuits on the side. It's not the like you put the stuff. It's gonna be on the side, that's the pie part. Everything else is gonna be soup based. What kind of veggies are you thinking? Peas, some green beans, corn, potatoes. The main thing is the sauce, the main thing. Is this like a special occasion dinner or is it just oh, like... Oh no, it's just, this is what I want to eat, so this is what I'm going to make. Others come to shop for basics. Everyone we talk to tells us how great the groceries are here. The produce is fresh, affordable, and for a lot of people who immigrated to Milwaukee, El Rey has fruits and vegetables that help them recreate dishes from home. When we meet Janu Marin, she's out running errands with her 15-year-old son. We catch her on a trip into El Rey for a bag of onions. Her son is over by the pineapples, hiding from the mic. My name is Janu Maran. I'm from the Bama. Oh, okay. My name is Lena. Yes. And this is Rafa. How long have you been coming to El Rey? It's El Rey. I think almost nine years. Nine years? Yep. Do yep. you live around here? I love here? the El Rey. So fresh and everything is cheap, right? Yeah. For everybody, it's better. Yeah. <laughs> do you do most of your grocery shopping here? Oh. It's just regular. I will come, it's just regular. Yep. What are you picking up today that you need? Oh, just for my son, he will be hungry. He need to be buy some food and then I will take it for the just onions. Yeah. How old is your son? Oh, 15 years, 15 almost, old? yep. <laughs> What's his favorite thing that you make? For the noodle. <laughs> oh, what kind of noodle? So, like for the white noodle, for the Asian, just Asian store, they have it. Like a rice noodle? Like yes, rice similar noodle. Similar like uh, Yeah, like pho. That's okay. similar like pho, but, but a different but kind. Different, right? Yep. What yes. do you do with it? So, I will cook meat, some, and then soup for the some chicken bone or the pork bone, and then with soup. The some fried meat and then with noodle. Yep, just very similar with for the whole. Yep. We're about to leave the produce section when we hear this knocking. A customer is crouched down, wrapping his knuckle down the line of watermelons. His name is Javier. He's from Veracruz, Mexico. La sandía, ¿cómo la escoge? Pues, le estamos tocando a ver si, si ya está. Describe it. How, how do you tell it's a good one? Like more uh, crispy, like this, it's ready. That's a good He says he's going to make agua fresca with water, sugar, ice, and of course, watermelon. We make our way to the front of the store where there's a service counter. Above it, there are pictures of the Pope, Virgen de Guadalupe, and the Villarreal brothers. Nancy Perez is sitting behind the counter. She's a supervisor at the store and a longtime employee, 22 years. Por lo que las conversaciones que hemos tenido con los trabajadores, familia fue una palabra que dijeron mucho los empleados. Es aquí donde formas más parte de, somos más familia, 
que compañeros, porque muchas veces I asked Nancy about family. It's something that comes up a lot when we talk to the people who work at El Rey. She says they do become family in a way. They spend more time here at the store than they do at home. They're not just co-workers. There's a sense of camaraderie. 45 años lleva la tienda del rey. ¿Qué impacto cree que ha tenido en la comunidad hispana Jimovac? Pues mucha porque en realidad todo mundo lejos de aquí ha venido precisamente aquí. I asked Nancy what impact she thinks the store has had on the community. A lot, she says. People come from far away to find what they're looking for. She says now there's a new community coming to the store, like people from Nicaragua and El Salvador. So they're trying to offer them products from their home countries. She says, at first, it was us Mexicans who came to El Rey, looking for products from home. Now it's them. Now it's more of an international store. For Maria, El Rey has been her go-to store for 22 years. We meet her at the meat counter where she's ordering pork and chicken for dinner that night. Maria goes to the store about four times a week. She says that all of the receipts in her purse are from El Rey. Maria orders four pounds of pork stew meat. That's a lot of food. I ask who she's cooking for. She says her husband, her six kids, her in-laws. There's 11 of them. That's why she's making two main dishes. She wants to please everybody. I ask whether she cooks for that many people every day. She says for her, it's every day. What about all the dishes, I ask? She says that's why I installed the dishwasher. El Rey has this way of becoming routine even if you don't live in Milwaukee anymore. We meet Benita Jonio in the back corner of the store, where she's pushing a cart filled with bags of El Rey's house-made tortillas. Actually, I'm visiting from Michigan. I'm on my way home. What brought you here? Well, I lived here for a couple years when I was younger. My dad came here to work, and so I think I was 11 years old. So I made friends with somebody, and we've been friends ever since. So I come here a couple times a year to come visit her, but also, we come here to get the tortillas and stuff, so I take them home. I buy a whole bunch, take them home to the family because they love the tortillas. So that's what I'm doing right now. So how many are you going to get to take to your family? Um, I probably I take at least 15 packs, a whole bunch. <laughs> I got a big family at home, so. But yeah, that's just like usually what anybody that comes to Milwaukee to visit, any of my family members in Michigan, they always bring back tortillas and like the pan dulce because don't, we don't have all that in Michigan. So we do, but it's not like here, you know, it's... Not El Rey quality. Right, right, so... Uh, you said that you lived here when you were younger as a kid. Did you remember, like, this grocery store when you were younger? I, you know, I think it was small. I think they just made the tortillas or something. I, I don't know. My, all I know is my mom and dad used to have the tortillas and we used to make tacos or whatever. So when you bring them back to your parents in Michigan, it's kind of like a reminder of life back in Milwaukee many yes. years ago. Oh, yeah, and they always... Remind me, don't forget to bring the tortillas and the pan dulces. How do you think you'll enjoy them when you get together with your family back home? Yeah, we'll make tacos, enchiladas. My sister, she makes the best enchiladas, so we put the 
work on her. <laughs> 45 years after he and his brother Beto opened the store, Ernesto Villarreal is proud of the impact they've had on the community. Beto passed away in 2011. He says that the stores have had a big impact on the community. Parents bring their kids to cash their first check here. And there are people from Puerto Rico that cash their checks from their home country. He says that there are a few places where they can do that. They've done something with the store, he says, that people feel proud of. I ask Ernesto what's to be of El Rey in another 45 years. He says that the store will still be here because the grandkids have started working. The second generation, he says, has already been helping. And now it's the third generation that has been helping. He's really proud of them, and they feel really proud of working at the store, too. We asked people whether they had fond memories of the store, and most of them said no. There's not really any one thing. It's just their grocery store. Maybe it's because El Rey's presence in their lives is constant. It's in the mango a mother cuts for her son, in chaotic family feasts, in the money wired to loved ones far away. The store gives to the community, and the community gives to their loved ones. That was WUWM's former community engagement coordinator, Rafael Munoz, and reporter Lena Tran at El Rey. Grinder sandwich was a recipe that went viral on TikTok. Customers at Glorioso's Italian market have ordered grinders for more than 70 years. But general manager Michael Glorioso says locals have other names for the sandwich. WUWM's Eddie Morales visited the market on Brady Street to talk with Glorioso about the sandwich and its many variations. Can you just tell me about what a grinder sandwich is? Well, sure. According to the definition, a grinder uh, sandwich is a submarine sandwich uh, that is especially popular in New England. Today, uh, really any kind of hot or cold sandwich sandwich is also often called a grinder um, if it's served on a grinder roll. And uh, that uh, sandwiches can take uh, many different names depending on where you are in the country and even regionally and citywide. Those uh, names would include things like Hero, Hoagie, Torpedo, Wedge, Zep, or Deli Sandwich, uh, Sub Sandwich, Submarine Sandwich, all those things really in the, uh, here in the country, depending on where you are, uh, are the same thing, uh, uh, unless you go to New England where it's something a little bit more specific. Because there are different names for these sandwiches and people call them different things, but they are the same sandwich, can you talk a little bit about what insight you gain into a person when they come in here and they ask for a certain type of sandwich, but it's not necessarily something that's on the menu. Sure. Um, we ha it happens to us all the time. We'll have a customer, maybe it'll be our first time in the Gloriosos, they'll walk up to our deli and uh, look to order a sandwich and they'll go, hey, what kind of grinders you have? And some of the uh, deli staff don't even know what they're talking about. What do you mean a grinder? What's that? And they'll go, you know, and then they'll describe it. And then our, our, our staff will go, oh, you mean uh, one of our signature deli sandwiches or something? Uh, and they go, yeah. 
And uh, what's interesting is when people say that, having been a- around uh, for a little bit of time here, um, I'm able to kind of figure out where they're from. If they say uh, Grinder, I know they're from New England East Coast. If they say Hoagie, they might be from New Jersey. If they say a bomber or something, they're probably from Racine or Kenosha. And so uh, it's interesting that you can peg people for where they're originally from by how they order the same sandwich, but what name they use. So it's uh, it's fun. And uh, once again, it's something that we try to educate our people on. When people ask for this, this is what they're talking about. They're just from somewhere else. If someone were to come in here and say, hey, can I get an Italian grinder sandwich? What would go into making that? From what I know defines the grinder is the hard, long uh, roll, the hard crust uh, with the soft, pillowy inside. So that long roll, whether it be plain or seated, is kind of the definition. What goes in it and whether it's cold or toasted is debatable, uh, once again, regionally. But in our sandwiches, you order a large or a regular. Uh, you then choose uh, the meats uh, that you want. You choose the cheese and any additional toppings, and we make it your way. We do, however, uh, have our own proprietary uh, sandwiches uh, that we post, which are our most popular. We call them our signature sandwiches, and those include things like the Felici Special. Felici was my grandfather's name, and probably 50, 60 years ago we developed that sandwich, uh, and that includes things like Genoa salami, mortadella, capicola, provolone, uh, and then you get it with or without balsamic vinegar, and then if you want, you can add anything else you want to it. We also have uh, grinder sandwiches uh, for those people who uh, may uh, have a slant towards veg- being a vegetarian where there is no meat. Uh, those also are very popular and they have things such as uh, roasted eggplant, artichokes, provolone, mild or hot uh, olive-based mufalata along with that. Um, we have all sorts of other options of hot and cold sandwiches, paninis and all that, but when it comes to that more specific grinder sandwich, uh, those are certainly our most popular ones. And with all those variations of the ingredients, one thing that is very important in that is, like you mentioned, the bread. Can you just speak to that a little bit more? Sure. Uh, Bread is important, and here at Glorioso's Italian Market, we have been utilizing uh, Shortino's Bakery, which is right on the corner from our uh, store here, for the past, I believe, uh, 74 years. Uh, we've been, they've been baking our bread fresh every day, and it's a, uh, either a short and or a long grinder roll uh, with uh, seated on the top. And the other key to it is that that roll is double baked. And the first baking, uh, just they flash bake it, and then they bake it one more time, and that gives it a crispy uh, outside and a, a soft inside. The importance of having a soft inside where the bread uh, is that the bread needs to absorb all of the oils and things that when you add things like jardinera or muffalata, they're based in oil, uh, olive oil, and that bread kind of absorbs it, or if we put balsamic vinegar on there or just a sprinkle of olive oil. If your, if your bread's too dense or too hard, it just runs out and makes a big mess. So the bread on the inside needs to be soft on our sandwiches to help give that uh, full experience and flavors that it's gonna absorb uh, from all the condiments that we put on. What are your thoughts about you know a recipe like this going viral on TikTok? Um, decades of Gloriosos doing this. Like, what do you what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know it's pretty cool that things that we've been doing for 70 years um, all become 
all of a sudden become a little bit more popular and or fashionable. Um, I think that, you know, the uh, growth of the sub sandwich shops, whether it be the Subways or the Cousins locally and so many others that are in the business, um, as they have learned that Italian is probably the most popular avenue to pursue, um, and they've introduced through their advertising efforts on national TV, uh, things like mortadella and capicola and prosciutto, whereas before it was ham, turkey, chicken, um, salami as a, a generic uh, term for whatever they were putting on. Uh, so uh, I think it's awesome that a new generation of sandwich eaters has been exposed to so many new things that have been around for a long time, and that's certainly been a, a boom for us in our business. Uh, we've been doing it for a long time. Michael, thank you so much for meeting with me here at Glorioso's and taking the time to talk to me today about Italian grinder sandwiches. You're very welcome. Michael Glorioso is the general manager of Glorioso's Italian Market. He spoke with WUWM's Eddie Morales last spring. Bubble tea shops have been popping up all over the Milwaukee area. We'll explore the Taiwanese origins of the trendy drinks next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Bubble tea shops have been popping up all over the Milwaukee area. It's a drink that can come in all flavors and levels of sweetness, with tea or no tea, milk, no milk, and often with signature tapioca pearls and jellies at the bottom. WUWM's Mayan Silver looks at the Taiwanese origins of the drink. In a small kiosk in Mayfair Mall's second-story food court, Xiaoxiang Hu is brewing fresh jasmine tea. Pitchers of black, Thai, and oolong teas are lined up in a rainbow of colors. Our teas are all overseas, so our Assam tea, black tea, are from India. Our jasmine tea are from China, and oolong from Taiwan. What makes a bubble tea shop different than a regular tea shop is the reliance on boba, tapioca pearls made of cassava flour. Generally served cold, it can also have other sweet jellies or popping balls that go in the bottom of your drink and are sucked up by a big, thick straw. At Bubblicious in Mayfair, who stirs a pot of bubbling boba as steam coils out of the top? She rinses the boba and starts to make a popular Taiwanese bubble tea drink. A tiger black milk tea. When you put together a bubble tea, most toppings go in first. Here we go, the boba in the cup. Who squeezes brown sugar syrup down the sides of the cup. So they kind of like a tiger stripe on there. And then she pours in some crisp black tea, scoops some ice from the freezer, gently drops the ice into the tea, tops the tea off with some creamy Wisconsin milk. And here is the tiger black milk tea. Who seals the drink with a pour-proof layer of plastic. As she shakes up the drink, the sweet white cream leisurely marbleizes through the black tea. The drink is now ready for a customer to puncture the top and sip away. Here we go. The tapioca starch for boba comes from the South American cassava plant. 
According to Eater magazine, cassava arrived in Taiwan via Southeast Asia in the 19th century, and people there already had a taste for jelly-like starch desserts. Bubble tea originated in Taiwan in the 1980s. It's a story of competing tea shops, and who really came up with putting tapioca pearls in tea is disputed territory. Here's Li Chi Chai, president of UWM's Taiwanese Student Association, who met us at Elite Boba on Farwell. He's from one of the cities that claims to have started boba tea culture in Taiwan. So I'm originally from Taichung, Taiwan, which is the center of Taiwan. I would just say like the boba tea restaurant is called Chun Shui Tang, and then that's originally from Taichung. There's a debate between Chun Shui Tang in Taichung and then also another Hanlin tea shop in Tainan. They're debating like, who is the original. The shops went to court in a prolonged lawsuit over bubble tea, but no one ended up with any trademarks or patents. There's no answer for who is the original, and maybe people in Taiwan, they don't care much. They, they just like boba. Whoever's fun, as long as it tastes good. And if you're wondering about the names bubble tea and boba, well, bubble comes not from the additions to the tea itself, but because the tea is originally handshaken, which leaves little bubbles at the top of the tea. Boba now refers to the tapioca pearls in particular. But the story goes, a famous and busty Taiwanese film star ordered pearl milk tea. The pearls got nicknamed boba, which was also slang for large breasts. These days, you can get fruity teas with jellies that are rectangular, not round, and taste sweeter like a firm jello. At places like Elite Boba, you can also get pudding or cheese top, which is a layer of more firm, savory, yogurt-like cream that you can mix into your tea. If you like savory flavor, you definitely want to try cheese on top. Back at Bubblicious in Mayfair Mall, Xiao Xuan Hu saw Nina Chesser tentatively approach the kiosk. What's that? All right. <laughs> the bubbles? Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah. you do want it. Have you had it before? No. <laughs> never had it. <laughs> Chesser's daughter had been urging her to try it. So she ordered, and who walked her through her first sip of a boba milkshake? Okay, you right. poke through. And the verdict? Delicious. <laughs> Ayan Silver, 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Thanks so much for listening to Lake Effect today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. We want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find a link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories that you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn about the concept of home rule and what it could mean for the future of Milwaukee. Join us again tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.